Welcome everyone to our June episode of our podcast. This month we're talking about pre-hospital medicine and retrieval. We've got some amazing guest speakers and registrars and consultants from all around our area health service. So we're very excited to welcome our friends from Orange and the PN Hospital as well and our retrieval service colleagues too. So my name's Pramod and I'm back for another episode and we'll do some introductions. Hi guys, this is Shreyas and I'm very keen in to weigh in with my zero retrieval experience in the past. Hi, my name's Yulais. I'm one of the EDSRMOs, soon to be a registrar. Um, I have previously trained in paramedicine before coming into medicine, so stoked to be here. Hi, I'm Ruby Xu. I'm one of the ED physicians working in Orange ED, that's Western New South Wales Local Health District. And I also work for Ambulance Service New South Wales for retrieval part. And on my spare time, I do some VMO shift in St George. So it's good to be here. I'm Shannon Townsend and I'm a registrar out at Orange Health Service also in Western New South Wales and have previously done a term in pre-hospital and retrieval for the flying doctors doing fixed wing retrieval. Hi, I'm Ruth Parcell. I'm an ED physician in Western Sydney. I work across Nepean, Westmead and Auburn. Uh, And just like Elise, before I did medicine, I was actually a paramedic. So now that I work in retrieval medicine at Careflight, uh, the rapid response helicopter at the back of Westmead. So I feel like my career's come full circle, really, and I'm back doing what I did over 20 years ago. Hey, guys, it's Simone. It's so nice to have you listen to us. Awesome. So we've got a great roundtable of, um, of speakers today and I think we're going to dig right in. Elise is going to talk us through our first paper, which is the duration of exposure to a pre-hospital advanced airway and neurological outcomes for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. It's a retrospective cohort study by Benoit et al., based out of Cincinnati and Texas hospitals in the States. Elise, if you'd like to take it away. This paper was really quite interesting to have a look at, actually. It was focusing on data taken from the PRIMED trial. So this was a study based in the States in 2007 to 2010, which was based off another study that was looking at rhythm interpretation. And I think one of the other, the other outcomes was looking at impedance devices with airways. So that actually ended prematurely because of futility. However, they took a lot of out-of-hospital data from out-of-hospital arrests and then translated all that across because this actual trial marked a lot of time intervals that it took. So when EMS arrived, when personnel did certain tasks, especially with airways as well as whether they had ROSC, whether they had good neurological outcomes at discharge from hospital. So a lot of the trials around, I guess, before that were based in whether someone had uh, return of spontaneous circulation as opposed to neurological outcomes. So this particular paper looked at the cohort of -of out-of-hospital non-traumatic arrests in over 18-year-olds who were not pregnant, not from a prison population either, and they excluded those who didn't have an advanced airway, so a supraglottic or an advanced airway ETT, and they also excluded people who didn't have ROSC, obviously. So the study outcomes were looking at, or the intervention arm of it, was looking at whether there was an intra-arrest advanced airway placed or a post-arrest airway placed, and had a look at the cerebral performance category score. 
So either ones or twos, which denote either normal function to mild to moderate dysfunction, but people could still do their ADLs. They could work with relatively low assistance at the end of it. So with neurological outcome, that's pretty important with our study cohort there. So the results of it were actually quite interesting. So intrahospital arrest placed airways um, had a survival outcome with good neurological outcome of 21.7% and your post-arrest was about 75 with good neurological outcomes. The, the findings of the study was that the timing of the actual airway placement wasn't actually, it wasn't associated with a poor neurological outcome or poor survival. So it was a very interesting study. I think a lot of these factors come into the covariates as well. So there were things that they couldn't actually control for, especially with the retrospective cohort that they were looking at. Yeah, I found it a real interesting read, especially when I compare it to what my current practice is in managing cardiac arrest patients in the ED setting, mind you. I'd be interested to know what your thoughts are regarding sort of the strengths and weaknesses overall for the paper, and then maybe uh, Ruby and Ruth, if you guys want to just pitch in, and I'd be interested, obviously I don't have much context in which I practice this medicine, so I'd be fascinated to hear what, what you both thought about the paper. Yeah, so one of the strengths of this this study was that it did use the specific timing data and looking at the duration instead of having a look at whether there was an advanced airway placed or not. So it kind of had that delineation between a supraglottic and an ETT, but they didn't go into actually looking at that in too great a detail. It was just whether an advanced airway was placed. The good thing about the study was that they did actually take into account other factors like pre-hospital cooling, in-hospital cooling as well to the neurological outcome. And they did analyse for covariates such as demographics with that. And the general findings were the healthier of the patient, the better they were in terms of survival. And I guess that's, that's kind of a limiting factor as well. You can't exactly choose your population that you're going to control for, especially with the retrospective nature of this study. And some of the other things that we can't control for as well is the circumstances and the cause of the arrest of which they studied for. Yeah, I mean, that's probably... Those challenges are echoed across all attempts at doing any sort of research in the emergency setting. Ruby, I'd be super interested to hear what you had to think about this paper. Thank you. I think this paper worries me somehow because, first of all, this is a paper that is starting at a, a question they want to, uh, an, to have answered for, but they couldn't achieve that. And they are going back to troll the data to actually see whether they can actually find some information to, to get published. And I agree that the superglottic airway and ETT is quite different kind of uh, management and intervention that in especially in post-cardiac arrest, especially if it was ROSC, the medical management, those two devices actually cause quite a bit of difference in, in the, the medical management and outcome-wise. And when I look at the data in a bit more detail, I was a bit worried about that on the table I can see that there were a higher rate of taking the patient to the cath lab and also uh, intervention in the cath lab in the post-ROSC and then the airway placement happened to that group. And we all understand that that's a, a probably a better outcome that will come from that group because they already have a ROSC and now you're just providing advanced medical care for neuroprotection in a way. And so that's the concern I have when I look at this paper. And I think they were trying to... After they throw through the data, they were trying to answer the question, with the airway in pre-hospital, the exposure time of the advanced airway, 
they want to find out whether the because they don't they are not allowed to use ventilator in their trial, so they were trying to identify whether the handbagging in the pre-hospital setting with a lot of human factors and speeds and volume coming to play, whether it caused any harm or not. But I actually don't think that they answer that question with the data they have. Yeah, I mean, I'm always a bit cautious when the study question a priori is different to the study question once the data has been analysed and received. So I think that's a really important point. Ruth, did you have um, any thoughts on the paper? Oh, firstly, I just agree wholeheartedly with Ruby's comments that... Yeah, it, it did seem like they'd already had one negative trial and they were, as you say, sort of trawling that database to, to find other things that were analysable, which, as Yuli said, there was a lot of data points collected, which is a good thing. But at the end of the paper, you know, you do feel a bit unrequited about, you know, what actually has this added to our knowledge in terms of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest care, particularly when there's so many other factors, particularly those of a BLS nature, like bystander CPR, AED use, shockable rhythms, all those sort of things that we know are really the big hitters in terms of that early phase of care. I guess the other thing that concerned me was they sort of went into a fair bit of detail about describing they were concerned about the tumultuous nature of the pre-hospital environment. And look, as Ruby and I are well aware, sometimes that can be the case. But most out-of-hospital cardiac arrests happen in a domestic sort of setting with relatively easy access. And by the time you're looking at placing airways and things, you know, the patient's usually got good access and on a stretcher. And apart from the point that Ruby raised about, you know, handbagging throughout that process, it actually, to me, once you get used to working in that environment, is actually fairly well controlled. So I'm not quite sure the point that they were trying to raise there. And I feel like they overstated the environmental challenges with some of those patients. Looking at sort of where they practice and where this study is published from, I'd imagine it would be a similar pre-hospital environment. Would you agree? I, I would have thought so. Yeah. I noticed yeah. it was like in sort of, the, they were Texan authors, so I'm assuming it was it was running those southern states. And, you know, I, I value the author's comments about they felt like there'd been a lot of data already on comparing pre-hospital airways and that perhaps this was a different data point that they hadn't looked at before, which is why they wanted to explore it. But I do feel that the hard-hitting data had already been covered by other studies and particularly I guess they were trying to build on the work of big studies like Airways 2, which actually, as you'd be aware if you're familiar with that study, showed essentially equivalence between supraglottic devices and endotracheal intubation. However, that study did show that obviously supraglottic airways are more successful because they're easier to place. So I guess, yeah, they were trying to analyse a different aspect of that, but I felt like that question had already been answered. So as I said, it just left me feeling a little unrequited. <laughs> um, also, one point that I noticed is that uh, this data was collected quite early on in 2007, and 2000, between 2007 and 2009, and the paper was uh, received in August 2020. And I think that they try to come up with a question they want to use the data to answer. But that question is a bit out of date because the collection of the data in 2007-2009 is about the impedance device when you back the patient that you actually try to keep a bit of positive airway when you are not squeezing. And that's the impedance device they were trying to use. But the question that now they come up with that is about whether the advanced airway exposed the patient to the erratic ventilation measure they, they were doing, whether they caused any harm or not. But since then, I think we have moved on quite a bit in that space, is that we know that human hands are not good ventilators. 
And if you want to achieve the proper good neural protection, you get the patient on the ventilator. Yep. Yep. So in terms of trying to answer that question, I think the question is slightly out of date. Out of date, yeah. I mean, I, I sort of realised that as well when the data was collected sort of and things in pre-hospital medicine, I assume, sort of have advanced quite significantly from, from that point in time. I'm not really familiar with the pre-hospital setting in terms of what you guys do in cardiac arrest. So just for the listeners as well who might not be so familiar, what is your current routine practice? If you had a ex-year-old person who had arrested in their backyard, obviously routine ALS sort of takes priority, but specifically in relation to the airway, what, what are your thoughts? What's going through your head when you're determining what device to use and, and sort of in that scenario, what would you... I think the setting for this paper, the group who did this study, is a bit different. They are in America and I, I believe that they are all paramedic crew. Although they have quite high advanced care paramedic that participate in this study. But in our setting is that if you have a medical pre-hospital cardiac arrest and you get a med- medical team involved, which means that the medical team would come with Lucas, would come with the uh, skills and equipment to do an RSI, which means that give medication, not just a cold tube. And this is going to benefit for those patients that had a post-ROSC because you, if once you have ROSC, you don't particularly want to shove the tube down their throat just blindly or coldly without any uh, pharmacological in- intervention. So for our setting is that if you... It's mostly likely to be in the urban area in Sydney. If you have a cardiac arrest and you've got a medical team involved, they come with all their equipment, including a Lucas device, and they will also try to take the patient to somewhere that is capable of uh, ECMO. Yeah. And it um, depends on the lock in terms of pre-hospital care, isn't it? About what day it happened to the patient, who is on shift, that because we have a care flight consultant that is a, and this is in Westme, and she does, she can cannulate for ECMO, yep. and she drop off a patient, youngish patient in Westme, yeah. and request, a, a, do the advanced life support, bring the patient into Westme. She pre-warned the hospital that, that this patient might need ECMO, but by the time they got there, it's a weekend, the ECMO team hasn't arrived yet, and she was actually the one putting the line to in. cannulate. Yeah. yeah, so it's it's kind of those progressive of care, and once the medical team is involved, you you go all you go all out basically. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I think what Ruby says is really valuable, and I think we're at a real crossroads in uh, certainly in the Sydney Basin about providing those more advanced interventions mm. in you know, out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, when traditionally medical teams in Sydney have been tasked for more trauma-based incidents. And as you're aware and you've discussed on your other podcasts, you know, with trials like Reset and Evidence, really trying to speed up that pre-hospital phase of care to drain potentially salvageable patients with shockable rhythms to the right hospital for those more advanced interventions that Ruby was speaking about. And I guess the next frontier is that sort of pre-hospital ECMO in terms of that Mm. top end of interventions. I guess, though, when we were all discussing those top end of interventions too, there's been a lot of work done in New South Wales uh, of a BLS up approach, though, as well. And that's really important as well, right from you know, in terms of the chain of survival, as you were aware, encouraging bystander CPR, when that call is placed to triple O, the call takers are trained to talk bystanders through CPR, 
try to access a publicly accessible defibrillator. And in New South Wales Ambulance, they've actually rolled out a public access defibrillator program too. So there's other agencies like firefighters, police, etc., that can try to identify and provide early defibrillation. So I, I think we've come a long way in New South Wales and, and we can really start to look at that complete patient journey right from that BLS approach through to those advanced interventions that Ruby mentioned. Yeah, I mean, it is fascinating, uh, sort of the spectrum of places where you can intervene along a patient's cardiac arrest journey. The data from patients who receive bystander CPR versus patients who don't and then their survival to hospital discharge is, you know, starkly different. And so, yeah, there is definitely value in those interventions there. Trace, did you have a question? I was just thinking, Ruby, about what you were mentioning in terms of, I guess, the differences in, I guess, both in the cohorts in this paper and also in in what you say see in terms of etiology and that sort of having significant downstream impacts. Um, certainly in this paper, you could see that the two groups, the, the ones that had the intra-arrest airway versus the post-ROSC airway, had some significant systematic differences. So, uh you know, much higher rates of VTVF etiology for arrest in the people who subsequently achieved ROSC and had their OA placed, much shorter duration of CPR. It almost suggested to me that the group that had the post-ROSC airway had the CPR done more, well, I guess with greater likelihood of success, it had success, and so then they did a post-ROSC airway instead of an intra-arrest airway. So around that, I was just wanting to know what your protocols tend to be in terms of which which airway you'd choose and when you'd choose the airway. So, for example, is there a particular time threshold that you're, you know, you're anticipating to be in the pre-hospital setting um, in which you'd decide to put an advanced airway in versus just sort of taking them directly to the hospital? And similarly, at what stage of an arrest do you decide I'm going to do an LMA or I'm going to do an ATT? In terms of pre-hospital setting, I think I don't think that the AOS in pre-hospital setting is that much different from what I do in ED. So if I have a patient in arrest, CPR in progress, we all realize that the advanced airway, especially ETT, does delay any other intervention that is ongoing. And we know that right at this moment, our cardiac arrest care is actually to minimize the interruption of uh, chest compression. So my practice will be that doesn't matter where I am, what situation, if the patient is have CPR in progress, the first thing is to actually get an LMA in because that's quick, that's minimum interruption. And that's try to actually get a bit of um, oxygenation into the patient. And in the pre-hospital setting, I think it's probably in hospital as well. I will be thinking more about changing into a more different ETT to, to actually maximize their ventilation and neural protection once I have ROSC. That's my practice. I don't know about Ruth. Yeah, I would echo Ruby's comments, definitely. And it's certainly the teaching amongst New South Wales ambulance paramedics would reflect that. And on the back of airways too that I mentioned, again, if there are any access issues, you know, you think about a domestic situation, someone collapsed in a bathroom, any of those things, not having 360 degree access to the patient, that's where supraglottic airways have really come into their own uh, until you can establish a more definitive environment and in the post-ROSC phase of care uh, for the patient. And so just um, extrapolating that slightly to the non-arrested patients, um, presuming critical illness, obviously. Obviously, the patient that's relatively well won't need an, any sort of definitive airway. But um, 
wherever, you know, as much as you can comment, accounting for the fact that, you know, every patient is quite different. I just wanted to know what sort of environmental factors and logistical factors you think about when deciding to intubate or, or place an advanced airway for the non-arrested patient. That's a good question, Shreyas, and it actually segues very nicely into the next paper. Mm-hmm. I see what you did there. Yeah, well, look, at Carefly, we would definitely teach uh, like a supraglottic airway sequence for a patient who is obtunded in a difficult-to-access environment. So as we're – I don't want to rain on uh, the next paper's parade, but in terms of, you know, entrapments in a vehicle, even difficult domestic situations, anything like that. The other advantage of stepping through a supraglottic sequence, which may even in the early stages just include something like a deep suction, NPAs or an OPA, is that actually, as we all know, that's a really good assessment of a patient's level of consciousness and what airway intervention they're actually going to tolerate. So that then you can plan for when you do have access to the patient, what sort of planning you may need around an endotracheal tube that you choose to place at a future time. So yeah, certainly environmental factors, including patient access, would be the biggest thing. And secondarily, it actually provides a good, A, a good escalating level of care, but B, a good patient assessment so that you can plan your downstream interventions. Uh, Yes, and completely agree with Ruth about the sequence or what the practice usually is in a pre-hospital setting. The access is the big problem. If you have a patient in the very confined space, awkward position, that you just can't do much at all. And also that indication for airway intervention in pre-hospital there were different layer of urgency as well. Like you have, like the the common. I'll just run down the list of the common the indication for uh, pre-hospital emergency uh, anesthesia is threatened airway, threatened ventilation, predict clinical cause, and humanitarian reason. Neural protections come as kind of a part of it. It can be threatened airway or threatened ventilation, but that's the sequence. So if you have a patient that has urgent threatened airway in an in-trap environment, you will try to get an LMA in or supraglottic airway in to actually temporize the measure. And once the patient is out, then you will do a once-over and do the more definitive intervention. Yeah, But if you actually have a patient that say that failed ventilation, like their chest is meshed and they just can't breathe, the LMA is not going to help you. So you will have to adjust your sequence and your priority about what you think is most important. And in a trap patient, you might have to say to the other agency on the on scene to say, this patient is going to die in two minutes if you don't drag him out now. And you, I need your help to drag him out because I can't do anything there. And that's kind of urgency and different situation that you might have to face. It's a fascinating insight. Elise, did you have uh, any sort of take-home points or thoughts on the paper yourself? My take-home point was that it was pretty difficult to control for data that you have no impact on, so it's retrospective. So it is taking essentially what is already a study and trying to draw out salient points to once again get something out of the study that really didn't show very much. And it also just shows like how much literature we have already based on I guess our airway adjuncts already, so from BLS methods to ALS, so your placement of advanced airways. It was just very interesting to hear you guys talk about when you would sort of think about that advanced airways. I know from what I've learned on my brief time in anaesthetics that we have shared mental models that we use to communicate difficult airways, difficult approaches such as the vortex approach. i just like to know if you guys have any shared mental models that you guys use to communicate that. 
I think that's a really valid point, Elise. I don't think I don't think I have a lot of tips and tricks for that. Only that we work in very small teams, and communication is critical, as you said. And I think it's just really about communicating your plan, uh, particularly like we what we were speaking about before about the patient journey, the level of urgency, and where you choose to do that particular intervention. And our paramedics are like ninjas when it comes to that to that skill. So already they're usually about four or five steps ahead of us doctors and they've kind of already got a, a mental plan of where the patient is going to be extricated to, what the setup is going to look like and then, you know, it's just about reassessing the patient along that clinical journey. As Ruby says, if there's a new life-threatening event, it's just about getting the team back together, communicating that and altering the plan if necessary. Yeah, and in pre-hospital and retrieval medicine setting that you found a like checklist and the reason for that is that because you have the tools to actually offload your cognition load to actually do the technical stuff and for very specific for that patient. And we have advantage of well-trained small team work together. You pretty much can read each other's mind and you just kind of need a nod to know what's going on. Um, I have a story to tell is that one of my colleagues said that he was intubating a patient and uh, they were quite busy, the patient was quite sick. And then just when they were about to do checklist, he looked up, the pilot was there sitting on the skid and just give him a wink. So it's kind of like the whole team know that what's going on and you're going to be all right and we have, our, we have your back. And you also trend to the degree that you work quite smoothly together. So I don't, I don't know about Ruth, but for me is that you don't actually need to say, say that much. It's kind of, you look at the situation, you nod to each other, yeah, this is what we need to do, yeah. And that's the good thing about working on that job. That's amazing. You guys are so cool, honestly. <laughs> I just remember the, I was an intern and resident just seeing them walking in with the flight jackets into the ED. It's nice. I think there's few things that are, pl- are more pleasurable than working in well-oiled teams. I think that's probably the only reason I continue to work in, in ED because there's just so much fun there. And, uh, you know, just hearing you all talk about uh, sort of the interaction between the team I can empathize with that on a level sort of in my resus department and so yeah there's certainly a great pleasure in that um, so thank you all for your insights on that paper uh, it was very very interesting and definitely raised some really fascinating points So we're very lucky again this month. Uh, we've got two excellent retrieval specialists with us and so we thought we'd do another two interludes. Uh, Ruth's going to go first. Ruth? Thanks, Treyas. It's a lot of pressure to come up with some pearls of wisdom. I guess this is, for me, is a, is a bit of a general plug for retrieval medicine. You know, when I first started this job as a, as a registrar initially for six months full-time, as I mentioned in the intros, it was a bit of full circle for me. Coming back, I had some experience in the pre-hospital environment before doing medicine. But now that I've moved into a more senior role and training the new registrars coming through, I guess what makes this environment endlessly entertaining if you like is really taking the medicine that we're comfortable and confident in practicing in the hospital 
to environments that are endlessly challenging, really. That's that's the big difference. And that's why it's what gets us up in the morning before every retrieval shift, because although we always say in ED, you never know what's going to happen, that unpredictability, I guess, of the environment is magnified many more times when you go in the pre-hospital and retrieval environment, which when you first start can be very overwhelming. Even the sensory overload is very overwhelming. You know, you think about the environmental conditions, you think about the bystanders, you think about interacting with emergency services on scene. There's just so many variables um, in the environment and then in terms of accessing and applying your clinical skills, knowledge and interventions to the patient, that can all seem very overwhelming. But what you need to do when you first start working in pre-hospital retrieval medicine as a, a trainee is to really focus on your skill set. I like to sort of think of it as really sort of staying in your lane and deferring to your team members, your paramedics, your pilots, your crewmen, your other emergency services on scene for their expertise. And if you do that, that's my key piece of advice, I guess. You can really never go wrong because your critical decisions as a doctor when you actually break it down, they're really quite simple. You know, it's whether to intubate or not, whether to do an ultrasound or not, whether to intervene in the chest or not, whether to give blood products or not. Okay, that's, there's, there's not a lot of additional interventions we bring to a highly skilled paramedic team by the roadside. So if you, if you boil it down to those interventions that you are the only one qualified to deliver and then try not to get too distracted, being aware of, but trying not to get too distracted by all those environmental things, you can never go wrong. Thank you so much, Ruth. Just one question, and I'm going to sort of catch you off guard with this one slightly. I'm sort of aware of a perception among trainees that uh, retrieval medicine, great, exciting potential career, very difficult to balance with the family. I just was interested in both of your um, thoughts about about that and whether you could sort of, I guess, offer any advice for the trainees that might be listening. Uh, yeah, no, thanks for that. And by the way, I do think it's great that you got two female uh, retrieval physicians on this podcast. So I feel that Ruby and I have a lot to offer in this space that we want to encourage people from a, a wide range of backgrounds to do retrieval. You know, don't think just because you're not a certain physical build or gender or race or whatever it is that you cannot have a career in retrieval, okay? Yes, there are certain characteristics that are advantageous, but if you've got any concerns about any of those things, you know, lots of us are really approachable and please come and talk to us about any of those things. So certainly a plug from that point of view is that I don't think retrieval shifts are necessarily any more you know, negative on your lifestyle than a normal ED or anaesthetic or ICU environment. Yes, it is shift work, but, you know, we tend to do shift work in all the other critical care uh, specialties anyway, and that's who our retrieval population is, is drawn from, the critical care specialties. So from a, from a time management or impact on your lifestyle point of view, there's probably a not a lot Um of additional effects. The only, I guess, additional effect is that shift overrun is much more likely in a retrieval environment depending on, obviously, how how you're placed, where you are geographically, the complexity of the job. There may be much more shift overrun. There's obviously not a distinct handover if Ruby's halfway in the air coming back from Kikatin along somewhere in New South Wales. So, but yeah, please don't think that just because you're a certain age, sex, physical ability, 
race, gender, any of those things that retrieval's not for you. Please come and talk to us. We're, we're a very small team environment and we're very encouraging for all people to learn um, the lessons that we've all had the benefit of learning in retrieval. Uh, just one example about the shift overrun. Uh, my last one overrun, I start at 7 o'clock in the morning. I walk into my house at 3 a.m. So that's unpredictable and you have to put up with that on this job. But I always like to say that uh, retrieval is my critical care fix. ED, we know that we, we are critical care specialty, but to be honest, on the regular ED shift, the percentage of critical care that you are practicing is probably not that much. Especially a consultant, you will be doing a lot of managing issues and the flow of the department kind of thing. So for me, is that retrieval is my critical care fix. And I have a sick patient and just one sick patient with a good team and I can play. Don't get too hesitant about thinking this is one of the choice that you can take up upon. And the I always also like to say that it depends on how badly you want it. Right. So if you are interested and you want it, there are ways to get into it and there are ways to stay in, in it. And it's, you just need to look at the, your different priority at any certain point of time and see which one is on the top and what you want to pursue. Thank you so much to both of you for those insights. Certainly reassuring and helpful for me and I'm sure it'll be helpful for many other people. So we'll move on to our second paper. So this paper is going to be presented by one of the registrars from Orange, Shannon, who's going to be talking about the emergency scalpel cricothyroidotomy use in a pre-hospital trauma service. It's a 20-year review by Aziz et al. Do you want to take it away? Thank you. So this is a recent study that was published in BMJ from London's Air Ambulance, and it was looking at the rate of scalpel cricothyroidotomy, or I'll just say scalpel crack, conducted by a physician paramedic team in a pre-hospital trauma service. And this was carried out over a 20-year period and identified the indications for the intervention and the factors associated with it. So firstly, we'll look at the method that they used. This was a retrospective observational study and it was carried out from the beginning of the year 2000 until the end of 2019, looking at clinical database records. So this was in a trauma service that predominantly serves an urban population of approximately 10 million people over an area of 2,500 square kilometres. So it's not entirely applicable to our patient population landscape here in Australia or the same demographic, but it's one of the few studies that looked at this intervention nonetheless. So patients of all ages and injuries were included in the analysis and patients with scalpel cricothyroidotomy before the arrival of the retrieval team and those who were intubated through tracheolaryngeal defects were excluded from the study. Now the data was extracted essentially from case records and patient reports through the organisation's databases and this was done by extractors that found that often the records themselves weren't entirely clear about the indication or the reason for intubation failure. So it is admitted that these indications were sometimes difficult to establish from the case notes, and so they had to have two people review all of the records uh, in order to achieve a consensus on why this was done. 
They then also looked at the factors affecting the rate of rescue scalpel crack in trauma patients and found that the introduction of supraglottic airways to the service and changes in the muscle relaxants used for pre-hospital emergency anaesthesia also impacted on the rates of scalpel crack that were performed in the pre-hospital trauma patients. So the results were interesting in that they showed that over a 20-year period there were 72 patients in total that received scalpel cricothyroidotomy, which was a very small percentage of the patient population that they were seeing and the amount of airway interventions that were performed. So it is a reasonably small cohort that we're looking at. The immediate primary cricothyroidotomy was performed in 17 of these patients, which was around 23%, and a rescue crack due to failed intubation essentially was performed in 55 patients, which accounted for 76% of the group. So predominantly rescue cricothyroidotomies were being performed. The most common indication for the primary crack was mechanical entrapment, which we talked a little bit about with the last paper, where the patient may have already been in cardiac arrest and it was impossible to gain access to the patient to attempt laryngoscopy. So this accounted for almost 30% of the cases that they had to do the primary scalpel crack on in that they were entrapped. The second most common indication for this intervention was limited mouth opening due to trismus in the patient and their injuries such as burns. And other indications included severe traumatic injuries to the face and larynx as well. For rescue scalpel cricothyroidotomy, difficult laryngoscopy was the most common factor leading to the failure of intubation. So 27% of the rescue cases, they found that this was due to airway soiling from blood as a result of the trauma. Next, they found that airway edema was a significant problem or difficult patient anatomy of the anterior airway. And another contributing factor that they came across commonly was laryngeal injury, causing tracheolaryngeal disruption and subsequent intubation failure. So of the 72 that were performed, 97% of them were performed successfully. So the procedure itself has a high success rate. But the mortality associated with this procedure was phenomenally high in this paper. And it's important to keep in mind that these are severe trauma patients. And of the 72 that they encountered, 41 of them were already in traumatic cardiac arrest at the time of the scalpel cricothyroidotomy being performed. 32 of the 72 patients died on scene and another 32 died in hospital. Overall, five of the 72 patients survived to hospital discharge and three were lost to follow up. So the survival rate in this study was 4.2% and the overall mortality in patients receiving this procedure was 88.9%, so really significant mortality rates. But despite its terrible survival outcomes, I quite like this study because I think that the value of it lies in the exploration of the indications for a scalpel cricothyroidotomy rather than proving that the intervention itself is what is the life-saving event. Because as Ruby would say, these are big, sick patients. We already know that they have a lot of things going against them, not just the airway issues in terms of their traumatic injuries. So they probably had a poor prognosis regardless of whether a scalpel cricothyroidotomy was performed. But I think we do need to appreciate that an airway needed to be established in each of these patients. I think also that performing a scalpel crack is something that you know, most of us will rarely ever have to do, but certainly need to consider the indications for it particularly, you know, in the emergency department if we fail our plans A, B and C. So this is probably a useful paper in helping us to think about when we're going to apply, you know, when those indications come into play, both in trauma and non-trauma patients. Yeah, awesome. So I guess for me, reading the paper, it it was kind of like lifting the curtain behind seeing what thing, how things worked in the pre-hospital setting. I mean, I've only really seen like two 
scalpel crikes. I've done one needle crike myself. All three were terrifying experiences that I probably never want to repeat again. And so it's, it is interesting to see the perspective from a pre-hospital setting about the primary and secondary crikes and then the, uh, the indications for each. What did you think some of the strengths and weaknesses were of the paper itself? Yeah, so I think it's certainly, uh, you know, the sample size was small and I think also that being a retrospective study, they had to rely on accurate record keeping. It may have been the case that in the case notes from 20 years in the past, it may have not have been accurately recorded as to what the exact indication was. You know, why did laryngoscopy fail? What, you know, and sometimes people might not have been aware of what it was that, that was hindering that attempt. It isn't easy to assess for every single case what the indication was. Also, I think there's probably a lot of variables in the clinicians as well and looking at, you know, were they primarily an anaesthetist and they're more likely to have a higher success rate in intubation? What was the training? You know, was it a consultant level clinician? Was it a registrar, you know, as the clinician? And I think that would have influenced the rate as well. Interestingly, there's been a significant change in the amount of scalpel cricothyroidotomies done in the past five years after introducing supraglottic airways and also changing to rocuronium instead of succimethonium in their kit. So looking at how they could optimise that first attempt at um, laryngoscopy, I think also played a significant part as well. Yeah, I mean, I I sort of kept an eye on the airway literature the last sort of 12 to 18 months of my fellowship training and found it real fascinating reading. I think when I was preparing for my OSCEs, I remember sort of reading the phrase that like the hardest part of doing a scalpel crike is to think about doing the scalpel crike. And that was one of the interesting things that I found in this paper, that the success rates were so high from a procedural perspective. Um, I'd love to hear from, from our two, two retrievalists what, what they thought about the paper and, and sort of the perspective that it offered them. Yeah, that was a really good summary, Shannon. I, I think what struck me most actually in that review of that period is I guess it's tempting to think, oh, not much really changes in your practice. You know, you sort of think, oh, I'm practising the same way that I was 20 years ago. But actually when you look back at those interventions and the impact of those interventions, as you said, uh, the supraglottic devices and then the change in uh, the emergency anaesthesia regime uh, with the retrospectoscope, I think we can see actually quite a lot has changed in that paper. So on the graphical representation in the figure in the paper, you can really see that dramatic drop on the first uh, device they introduced. I think it was the ProSeal and then the iGel and then subsequently, as you said, in the last period, the introduction of Rocuronium. And actually when you delved into the text in that paper, you saw that that vastly impacted, A, as you said, the biggest indication, mechanical entrapment, And as we spoke about in the previous paper, that that would be primarily addressed via a superglottic device now, particularly also the patient indications, the fact that those patients were entrapped and in traumatic cardiac arrest. I guess that part of the paper too actually addresses a common question we face in retrieval of just because you can doesn't mean you should. So for the severely entrapped patient in traumatic cardiac arrest, I would suggest a lot of senior clinicians may not even attempt resuscitation in that setting. So again, the variable sort of skill level um, perhaps of the clinicians attending and over that time period may have changed. And again, in the indications for the scalpel crike about inadequate relaxation versus trismus versus mouth opening, again, perhaps some of that was addressed with the relaxation, the inadequate relaxation, 
And again, if you delved into the text, it was saying that perhaps some of that was actually misinterpreted and it was actually rigor mortis. So again, you're facing the same issues there of, of interpretation about what the patient's pathology and the etiology was, as well as the change in interventions over that time. From my point of view, uh, I, first of all, I have to make a disclaimer because I work for the Lindenhams in a period that is using ProSeal and sucks and Intimidate. Uh, let's just tell you that I'm pretty old. And uh, the funny thing to look at the paper is that uh, one of the author, David Lockie, he was the consultant that signed me off after my training period out on the road. Yeah, so bring a bit of deja vu back <laughs> in that way. Yeah, so to answer one of the Shannon's question is about what their skill level is. That the service is pretty much like the uh, retrieval service with the ambulance now is that they have a, a well-trained team with a, a senior paramedic and a senior doctor. And the doctor usually are either consultant or just got there. And uh, in London, they can be intensivist and this is ED doc. They actually have a couple of surgeons pop in as well because they are just interested in that yeah. area. So those are the, the team member that you would wondering about what kind of composition they have. So this paper is a retrospective kind of study. And I think from what I can see, it gives me the confirmed information that I have learning through the way, along the way. Um, first of all, I believe that the Lindenham service was the first one saying, no, we are not doing needle quack because it's not helpful. So they are the team that actually bring in the surgical airway, scalpel, finger, bougie into the equation. And I think they will have to keep a quite, quite close eye on it to make sure that they are doing the right thing. And I think that might be part of the reason they go back and look at the data. And they also, what I get from it is also that you can be reassured that the success rate is quite high. It's a rare procedure, but you need to train yourself and your teammates to the skill level of those rare uh, procedure that you have to perform. Yeah. These procedures usually are not difficult. It's about making the decision to do it that's difficult. Yeah. So you, we can be reassured that the, the success, success rate is high. And then another thing that I learned along the historical different device, different medication that I learned is about failed intubation to use a surgical airway as a rescue airway is usually because we didn't actually get to the best condition of the patient before we embark on the intubation. So if you actually do the right thing with the right rescue backup, that and you use the, you can see the using ketamine and rocuronium, the surgical airway rates drop off quite a lot. And that's because the, the first attempt with their laryngoscope intubation, the success rate has risen. But we all know that it's a rare procedure. You can do it if you train for it. And uh, it can be your rescue airway in the dire situation that you might have to. And you might save a couple of patients. Just for you know, those trainees who maybe aren't so familiar with the use of paralytics and the preference in paralytics, what actually was the difference between sucks and, and rock? I have a, and a vague understanding of the literature, but I'd be fascinated to hear, especially through your practice, how things have changed and the difference you maybe saw at the bedside for these patients or roadside. 
Yeah, I guess it's an interesting debate, isn't it? And I always tell the new registrars to our service just to Google the sucks, sucks and rock, rocks article. And there is a lot of data out there comparing the two. I guess the difference though when using muscle relaxants in the hospital environment versus the pre-hospital environment is just controlling for those variables that are a little more diverse. And, and whether they be environmental or access or additional tasks that need to be done I mean, we all know the same tasks need to occur in ED, like NG tubes or chest x-rays, those sorts of things. But um, the additional patient packaging tasks, I guess, um, in the pre-hospital environment are a little more challenging. And, and those tasks, you know, may take a little longer to achieve, even simple things like attaching to a ventilator, setting it up on your bridge, all those sorts of things. And that's where, for me, using high-dose rock to buy you that little bit of extra breathing space to start to think about your post-intubation bundle of care, that wins hands down every time for me. And then, as we all know, rock in high doses, you know, most people would say sucks will still give you marginally quicker uh, paralysis times, marginally, but rock in high doses will, let's face it, you're starting to split hairs. So um, I think for the advantage it conveys um, for those environmental challenges that I spoke about, I think in the pre-hospital environment, that's why we've all moved to that. But I'd be interested to hear Ruby's comments about that transition. So I haven't used socks since I was in London, since I came back to Australia, that was 2010. So personally, I think a lot of trouble that we found in difficult airway is because the patient's condition is not optimised and they're not paralysed properly. Socks doses-wise, because I haven't used for years, so I don't know whether uh, those... In different people's guessing the patient's weight and how much to give, mm. whether that has an impact on that. And then the other worrying thing for me with socks is that it's short acting. And if your first attempt is not successful, when you try to correct something and go in for the second attempt, the paralyzing effect is gone. And then you are intubating a patient with a tone that it just makes it a bit more difficult. Or you just have to remember to give a second dose. And that's also debatable about how much effect that you have on the patient. I don't know about the different institutions, how well they how well they keep an eye on the success rate of their intubation process. I can only speak from the retrieval service point of view. I have the numbers from November 2019 to October 2020. The whole retrieval New South Wales ambulance, the three bases, has about 2,800 cases. And among them, it's about 490 RSI performed in that group of patients. And because of the protocol, and we, uh, we adhere to the checklist and do it very, very carefully in terms of get rid of all the other possible effects that can, that can compromise the patient's intubating condition, the intubation rate we have, the first pass rate, that's what we try to achieve in retrieval service, is 96 point something percent. So that's the thing, because we know that with previous history, previous story that we have information-wise, when we are using other agents, those rates were just never pushed that high. But of course, we have changed quite a lot along the way. So it might not just be the, those kind of practice that affect the success rate. So I'm an early converter in, the, in terms of the Saxon uh, ketamine combination and the high dose is the way to go. Shreyas, did you have any thoughts? This was something that I was very interested in. 
from my limited understanding of the literature, I, as far as I was aware, the in the hospital setting there wasn't much difference in terms of sort of first pass success rate between sucks and rock. Do you guys find, like, practically speaking, in the retrieval setting, that the advantage of rock has been more because of the longer duration, maybe an improved second pass success, or is, is there something about rock that helps you to optimize the first laryngoscopy as well? Yeah, I'm not sure in terms of first pass, uh, particularly the advantages, as Ruby says, if you need to have a second look, it's still acting and then more the patient packaging and the extraneous sort of jobs that need to be achieved. I think, as Ruby mentioned, though, there's also been this sort of bundle of care that's kind of been implemented at the same time and particularly things like video laryngoscopy that's been added to our services here. I'm not sure at the time point that it was introduced to the, in the London group, but it's certainly made a big difference in terms of intubation success, which, again, as Ruby mentioned, were already very high. Uh, I guess the thing is, too, though, the temptation with rock and people who are critics of it would say, again, we use all use first-pass success, as you know, in terms of airway registry data, but it's important because the effects of rock are so long-lasting to not be determined to pass that bit of plastic on the first look every time with uh, negative impacts on the patient's physiology. So really there's sort of some work just commencing on looking at you know, first pass success without hypotension or without desaturations, you know, sort of looking at those things in tandem because we all know how easy it is to get task focused and, and leave that laryngoscope in situ and ignore kind of negative effects on the patient's physiology. So uh, it's important not to fall into that temptation with rock, I feel. Shannon, did you have anything you wanted to add? Yeah, certainly in looking at the paper they outlined the specific example that they gave is exactly like what you said Ruby in that they were optimizing their conditions with sucks and to have a second look but found that the sucks had worn off by that period of time I'd be interested to hear from you in regards to any other tips you have for optimizing laryngoscopy on the first attempt given that the most common factor that hindered that was things like airway soiling and trauma and how do you overcome you know blood getting in the way of your view and things like that in the pre-hospital setting where you don't have you know your ball suctions and and all of the various things that we might have in the hospital but certainly still come across those um, sort of challenges. So for pre-hospital ISI in the setting that we encounter is mainly to actually make sure that you down everything to optimize the patient's condition, position, situation. So when you go in, that you know that there was nothing better that you can do. So you won't hang on too long. It's not like I should try this a bit. I should move the head a bit or... So the, the thing is, for me, it's about patient's position is really important and maximise the patient's physiology before you do the induction is quite important. you got a chance to do that. And in terms of the soiling, we all know that blood is your enemy and the view is not good. But as Ruth mentioned, that the video laryngoscope does help a lot. And also that it means that you can have more than one person on eyes on that view to, to actually troubleshoot about where you are and what you can do. And also that I know that our paramedic training, when they were doing the ISI training with the intubation, most of them deal with the suction. So they put a laryngoscope in and then deal with the suction to going down. And that might be why they do that. I don't particularly know the reason. If I go back to the sucks and rocks, I don't have any study or any evidence to prove it, but I believe that because the rock take a little bit longer to work, and there's a period of time that you can kind of almost mini recap of the patient's condition while you are waiting for it to work. And you can check in with your teammates 
about where you are. And I think that period of time might actually has quiet down the adrenaline surge a bit. And that might actually have some effects of improving the performance when you go in to have a look. That's actually a really interesting nuance that I had never thought of before in terms of rock. So thank you, um, Ruby, for that. That was really good. Um, Sam, did you have a question? On that note, Ruby, is there any, any instances where you prefer socks over rock? I don't think that I have to use, unless they told me they're allergic or have some trouble before. Yeah, that's why I haven't used for 10 years now. Yeah, it sounds like you were doing it before I thought it was cool as well. I mean, I, I sort of stopped using sucks maybe about two and a half years ago. Mm-hmm. I haven't used it in a single RSI since then. I think there's been some papers which have demonstrated equal first-pass success between the two. And then when I just think about the total lack of cognitive loading that I need to do to think about the millions of contraindications mm-hmm. that are there with sucks and basically nothing for rock, and then obviously add to that the advantage of the prolonged paralysis, meaning that I can troubleshoot without then having to freak out about the patient sort of moving. I think I'm sort of on, on the same bandwagon as you just a couple of years later. I remember when I was going through registrar training, it was definitely a conversation that was happening all around me, and there was lots of practice variations, but I think the trend is always is now sort yeah. of firmly towards the more frequent use of rock uranium. Um. We do have cases that you have to do in the hospital transfer from a private and this theatre to go to a public hospital because they think that they are allergic to rock because they will induce and put it to sleep and intubate it, but they drop their blood pressure, their hyper, hypotension, and they assume that it was the rock because there was no other thing. So if I have a patient come in to me and there's a documented record say that they are allergic to rock, then I might have to rethink, but I haven't encountered that just yet. And one of the advantage about socks, that old-fashioned way of saying it's advantage, is that you can see the fasciculation. To me, the fasciculation actually causing a bit of chaos, especially for some of the paramedic they haven't seen it before. That can be quite scary and odd. It looks almost like a seizure. And that can actually disturb your dynamic and causing uncalled for kind of panic in that setting. Some fascinating insights into the sort of day-to-day practice, Shreyas. Thank you for those insights and, and particularly like I guess a new frame of mind around the sucks versus rock thing. One thing that I'm certainly taking away from both both of what you're saying is probably the advantages of having a very standard protocolized approach um, in terms of these sort of high con- consequence procedures. It probably just decreases your cognitive load significantly. I know it's been interesting for me on anesthetics term at the moment to just play with some of the drugs that I don't usually use, like um, thiopentone and, and sucks. Um, but certainly I think that generally speaking, I choose the same drugs over and over again. Just before we wrap up, I guess one thing that was very reassuring to me in this paper was that the actual need to do scalpel crike is rare and getting rarer. And I think as, you know, as through the discussion, we've alluded to a number of reasons for that whether it's sort of improvements in our protocols, improvements in the drugs that we're using, you know, a variety of things, then suddenly the um, LMA is being an option. I just thought for our listeners it would be very helpful for all of us, both you, Ruth and Ruby, but also Prem, you've done a, a needle before. I'm, I'm not sure, Shannon or, or Sam, if you guys have seen it before. I've never seen or done one. Um, but just about what your experience was of having done these procedures. 
Yeah, no, it was interesting. I was just thinking that myself just to loop back to the paper and it reminded me when Ruby said about our essential procedure is to is to lead with suction because it's important to understand all ED airways and obviously all pre-hospital airways by their very nature are, are super high risk and all the mitigators we put in place because even with video laryngoscopy, the, the heavily soiled airway, whether that be by blood vomitus, etc., those secretions are also the enemy of video. So video doesn't mitigate all things, which, you know, really important to to lead with suction, leave the severe facial traumas on their side till the last minute or sitting up, all those sorts of things that we put in place. But I guess in terms of certainly of, of our services, the most common indication, which was alluded to in this group as well, would be the severe facial trauma, the severe neck injury mechanisms like you know, into the rear of a sort of flatbed truck, stabbings, gunshot, you know, often self-inflicted, unfortunately, to the face and chin sort of area. Several years ago in Sydney, there was sort of a series of kind of garrottings, you know, people doing very scary things like hanging up metal wires between trees for motorbike riders, all sorts of things uh, like that. So that is actually the main indication that we teach in terms of what will probably end up being often your plan A or plan A and a half, if you like, when you're briefing your airway plan. So how I like to think about and how I teach surgical airways in our service is it's often not the rescue technique. It's often not far down that, you know, A, B, C, D, E sort of plan. It's often one quick look, but we have briefed and prepared for the surgical airway in the patient with those mechanisms that I described. Yeah, and my learnings have all been from my colleagues in that regard because fortunately I have not faced that myself. Yeah, I just need to clarify that I didn't contribute to any of the <laughs> surgical <laughs> airway that down in London. I did wonder um, that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the thing about the surgical airway is that we know the indication might be different. That the primary surgical airway, as Ruth mentioned, about the severe facial trauma, you just don't have any anatomy above your chin that you can ascertain and you have to go for the neck and other indication that I heard about when in London is about severe burns they already so hold, yeah, deep yeah. burns and they just can't open their mouth you just have to go for the, the neck in terms of the procedure wise I just want to mention that the important thing we learned over the year was the training I haven't actually done a surgical airway on live patient myself but in a service that we probably get one or two every year and it just depends on where, when that happened. And I remember quite clearly one was that a jet ski on the beach and got hit just on the, on the face and it was quite meshed. So they have to go for the neck pretty much primarily because they know that on the top end they can't actually see much. But the procedure-wise, two things. One is, is a tactile procedure. It's not a seeing procedure. You actually have to f- use your finger to feel it because there will be blood and you can't actually identify the specific anatomy you want to see that clearly. So it's by feel. And the second thing is that the thing that we come up with and, and find it works is that make it simple. Not stupid, but simple. So it's the scalpel, finger, step, for, yeah, bougie in. That's, that's the procedure. And if you have a patient that has anatomy you can identify, that's the procedure. If you have a fat neck or the anatomy you just can't feel at all, the suggestion is to make a, a vertical cut. Mm. 
get rid of the soft tissue and then go in and feel um, by scalpel finger bougie. And that's the, the procedure. That's why we always say that these kind of things, it's quite simple to do. It's the mental step of making the decision that you need to do it. That is the difficult bit. Yeah, I mean, mine, um, mine wasn't in a trauma setting. Uh, mine was a patient who had just been extubated in our intensive care unit. Uh, it's like, it's so anxiety provoking that I can actually remember everything about it. It was extremely terrifying. I'm probably like third year registrar and I remember sitting at the ICU bay typing my discharge summary for another patient whilst the patient directly in front of me was getting extubated the nurse pulled the tube out and then just slapping the door to get my attention and I look up and she's just waving at me and the patient's gradually turning progressively more and more cyanotic and I remember it's like hit the ALS button ran in luckily the ICU consultant was behind me she was an anaesthetist and intensivist Went in, had a look, grade four, couldn't see mm-hmm. anything, uh, and then just put the, the needle mm-hmm. kit in my hands. So I, I sort of, you know, when I started ED training, I was very paranoid about these high-consequence procedures. You know, you hear about the resuscitative hysterotomies, and you're just like, I don't understand how these things look in real life. And so for me, it was all about, I sort of spent the first six months of my ED training in a panic, going over all these procedures in my head about how I would do it. I guess it kind of paid off a little bit because it all sort of felt very automatic at that stage. But it is very fiddly. And I mean, I remember then reading up on the literature and about the success rates about the needle versus the scalpel. And I can definitely vouch for that. It's a, it's a multi-part procedure with threading things through things. And so I totally understand how a scalpel bougie technique and would be so much. Oh, well. my God, the intention tremor is, yeah, <laughs> it, it's bad. It is, I, I sort of have a bit of baseline intention tremor, but it was <laughs> hilarious. The sort of anaesthetist looking at me was like, just kind of like from the end of the bed, it's like, are you all right? And I was sitting there trying to just, yeah. No, it's, it, was, it was definitely a, a very traumatic experience from a sort of just remembering it um, but I was definitely struck by the complexity of the procedure uh, and then when you sort of see YouTube videos of people doing the um, the finger bougie scalpel scalpel bougie technique it's so much more sort of easier on the cognitive aspect of things um, but yeah no the, the perspectives were fascinating uh, thank you both for sort of bringing that to the discussion it does help put some of this esoteric data in context at least for someone like me who's doesn't have very much pre-hospital experience um, and so yeah those insights are really appreciated Shannon, did you have any sort of take-home points from the discussions or from the paper itself? Yeah, I think definitely the take-home points from the paper and but more valuably the discussion today is that, you know, ideally if we optimise our conditions, our patient position, the equipment that we're using, the drugs that we're choosing, then we will have a higher first-pass success at laryngoscopy and not have to resort to the scalpel crack. But even though it is becoming more and more rare to have to do that procedure, it is still important to train and practice and be comfortable doing that procedure and as Ruby said be able to overcome that mental barrier of actually you know identifying the indications and saying this is a time now where I do need to do this and being able to commit to that and um, confidently perform the procedure even though it is rare. Now it's time for the second part of our interludes. Ruby's going to share some insights with us. Ruby? I would like to talk about my favourite C word. Keep it clean, guys. Uh, It's curiosity. Albert Einstein once said, I have no special talent. I'm only passionately curious. 
Since I have less talent than an average Jane, let alone Einstein, I long for curiosity and make it my favorite C word in attempt of curving the imposter syndrome within. Besides, these positive, sparkly, open, and receptive emotions always make me feel uplifted. So I would like to share it with you. I believe that our world nowadays can often feel very polarized. There seems to be a strong oppositional view on every statement's claim or opinion. This division only gets wider because we are good at filtering out or dismissing unwelcome, surprising information, which is one of our stubborn defense against changing our mind. But why are we unwilling to assimilate surprising new information and resistant to change our minds? Any surprising new information often poses a challenge to our existing worldview. The human brain responds in the same anxious way to facts which threaten our preconceptions as it does to wild animals which threaten our lives. So, how can we break this innate and primal reaction towards new surprising information? We do it with curiosity. With a curious frame of mind, surprising information need not provoke anxiety. It can be engaging mystery or a puzzle to solve. So I would like us to be all be curious, look deeper, and ask questions. Once we start to peer beneath the surface of things, become aware of the gap in our knowledge, and treat each question as the path to a better question we will find that we will have curiosity as a constant habit that we have. Quote, curiosity is the wick in the candle of learning, unquote. Curiosity starts to glow when there is a gap between what we want to know and what we know. If we want to avoid ignorance, we need to ask questions, open-minded, genuine questions. And once we start asking them, we may find it delightfully difficult to stop. A quote from Zora Neale Hurston. Research is a formalized curiosity. It is poking and prying with a purpose. So I hope you found it fitting for me to share my favorite C word at this Network 5 Journal Club. Thank you so much, Ruby. That was very interesting to think about. I'm not sure if it's a good thing or a bad thing that we've got a C word theme for each episode coming up now. No, that was, that was a very useful insight, I think, into both our clinical practice, but probably our day-to-day lives nowadays as well. So thank you. Awesome. So we'll move on to our uh, last paper. We'll save the best one for last, I think. So we've got Pre-hospital plasma during air medical transport in trauma patients at risk for hemorrhagic shock by Sperry et al. And Ruth's kindly offered to walk us through this paper and um, facilitate some interesting discussion. So. Oh, thanks, Pramod. I guess this is an exciting paper, <laughs> <laughs> as exciting as papers can be. Number one, it's got a cute acronym. I like I PAMPA. Yeah, I know. And obviously built on the work of PROPA, which was the sort of in-hospital version. It came out in 2015 in JAMA about ratios of, of blood products. And 
Interestingly, though, just I know I'm supposed to be talking about this one, but you know, proper though was a negative trial in comparing the ratios. You know, this evolution of one to one to two, one to one to one, didn't make any difference. But in proper, it did prevent some early death from exsanguination. So that seems to be the default position that most uh, in-hospital transfusions and MTPs come bundled uh, with a whole heap of products, as you know. But anyway, I shouldn't dwell too much on that one. I'm moving on to Pam which was 2018 in the New England Journal. The reason I guess I say it's exciting is it was actually practice changing for a lot of us in retrieval in that um, prior to this, certainly in Australian services anyway, we really only carried pack cells in our uh, blood boxes that we kindly get delivered from our relevant blood banks at the hospitals. But since this paper around the that stage, sort of 2017, 2018, we introduced what we call ELP, which I like to think of the as the UHT milk version of FFP. <laughs> so uh, that's been introduced into our services around the time of this paper. So that's why I say it's exciting, just to provide a bit of background. So getting down to the paper itself, look, it was an RCT. There was some certain aspects of the RCT. Obviously, it wasn't it wasn't blinded to the people actually giving the products. It was blinded to the people that were analysing the data. And there was a few sort of interesting things about the study design. It had to be sort of pragmatic and and given in clusters, largely because of the availability of the products. And the products in this case had to be thawed, unlike, as I say, um, the ELP that we carry on our services today. So there was a lot of early work to be done which affected the study design in this context that we've since uh, overcome, certainly in an Australian context anyway. So what they did was they looked at that early administration of plasma, two units to be specific, and the outcomes that they were looking at was uh, mortality at 30 days and then uh, basically some surrogate, you know, other measures they looked at were things like prothrombin time ratio and they found significant differences between the groups, the standard care group and the groups given plasma in that time and actually what I thought was really interesting in terms of the results was they did a Kaplan-Meier curve which being a non-maths person doesn't mean much to me but when I saw it graphically it was really quite stark that the the curve started to separate at around about the three hour mark in the two groups so that was really stark to see that in a visual way that the outcome started to separate so early. And I guess the other things in terms of adverse effects of the interventions, they wanted to make sure there weren't going to be any significant differences with regard to, you know, transfusion reactions, uh, things like trali, acute lung injury, ARDS type pictures, uh, multi-organ failures and infective complications, which they didn't find any statistically significant differences between the two groups in terms of those adverse effects. So in terms of the hard-hitting results, the mortality difference at 30 days was actually about 10 percentage points in that group. And we're talking about quite a severely injured group as well. So the average ISS, I think, was around 20-odd, 22. And when you think about what we call sort of the severely injured polytrauma, uh, we start usually at an ISS of around 15. So they were, I like Ruby's big sick, or I'd call them pretty crook um, <laughs> patients. They make, um, to have a 10% survival difference at, at 30 days um, is pretty significant in a group with very severe injuries. 
Interestingly, they drew down from a very large population. Uh, the study sort of drew from a population over about a three-year period from about 7,000 patients and they managed to whittle that down to just over 500 that were eligible. Nice even split of the, the study groups and uh, there wasn't a lot of significant differences between other factors, you know, in terms of injuries, mechanisms, age, sex, they were all fairly well controlled for across both groups as well. So just to clarify, this is mainly trauma patients, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah. And they had a nice even mix of mechanisms too, both yeah. blunt and penetrating exactly. trauma across both groups. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, just thinking about the effects that uh, sort of pro-thrombotic and anti-thrombotic products have specifically in trauma, just I think really highlighted to me that the coagulopathy that is present in these patients is like a unique disease entity. Um, when you think about hemorrhage from other etiologies, for example, I think, I mean, the number of TXA trials that are coming out now is kind of like nauseating, but every single one is basically negative except, you know, for the crash trials in, in trauma. And so that sort of demonstrates that the subset population of trauma, the hemorrhagic shock that is affected by the trauma patients is different to the hemorrhagic shock that comes in in your PPH or in your acute upper GI bleeders. And then that this sort of, you know, furthers that thought for me because I, I doubt it would be interesting to know if, if, if uh, other hemorrhagic shocked patients have a similar uh, benefit because this is quite a stark uh, improvement in, in mortality. Um, and But, yeah, that was the main takeaway for me at least uh, in terms of just understanding the, the raw physiology and pathology of the disease entity. Yeah, I think that there was a small group of people, especially one of the trauma surgeons in London, that has a um, – concept and uh, he has been gradually proven that he was right is a, he called it the traumatic coagulopathy mm. so it's not about what the treatment the patient has severe trauma and it's not particularly what the patient has been given it's nothing to do with how much crystalloid that has been given or uh, when did they get into hospital it's about those severe trauma once they got to a hospital facility and if they have the power to do blood tests, to do a coax from the very beginning, they actually found that their coax is already deranged. And those happen in more, more in blunt trauma, so it's not a consumption issue. And they believe that the physiology is that you have severe blunt trauma, that you have a lot of disruption with the small blood vessel, the endothelial disruption, and those kind of cascade just kick off. And then it almost becoming a DIC without the, the other... Um, inducing factors to cause DIC. And this is what, as Ruth said, that this is quite exciting is because we, we know it's a good idea and when you look at the graph and you saw the graph separate three hours after the product was given and it stays that way. And it's just nice to see that we are doing the right thing and it's been confirmed by the paper. Ruby, that actually um, segues very nicely into... One, I guess, question I had about the paper. You were mentioning about, you know, what impact, if any, crystalloid has had. I did notice that one of the differences between the two groups in this paper was that the group that didn't receive the plasma actually received a reasonable, reasonably increased crystalloid. From my limited understanding of the prior literature, I understand that crystalloid is not ideal for trauma patients. And certainly this, you know, this this cohort exactly is exactly what you alluded to. More than 80% in both groups were blunt injuries. I just wonder from both of you what you think the impact of the crystalloid was in terms of sort of the effect size. 
I want to ask Ruth, what's your opinion about that difference between those two groups? In the because I wrote down the issue that I have with this result and study is that first of all, the majority of patients are white. I don't know why. <laughs> and the second is the medium pre-hospital crystal volume is 900 in the standard care group and 500 in the plasma group. And that's quite a big difference. And I think that might be one of the confounding factors that af affect the nice graph that separated early and stay separated. But I'm human. I like to believe what I want to believe. So <laughs> I don't know about what do you think? Yeah, I think it's certainly probably the most interesting issue to pick apart from the paper. And again, you sort of wonder, because you've got a new trick in your bag of tricks, are you just giving that preferentially? And if you don't have that intervention, you know, you tend to give more of what you have, which is the crystalloid. The other interesting thing, though, to pick apart about that is the delivery of pack cells as well, mm -hmm. because it did say that some services had the availability of pack cells, others didn't, the quantity of that also varied. So certainly now, as I alluded to, our practice would just be to give straight away in severely injured patients. We've got a double spiked pump set that we put the plasma essentially on one side and the pack cells on the other so essentially you're delivering them together but getting that plasma in early obviously quite critical so the paper actually doesn't answer that question they sort of say oh it would be for future whether just withholding the crystalloid alone even without the other interventions actually had a significant conveyed a significant survival benefit because obviously that concept is out of sort of damage control resuscitation permissive hypotension and certainly even over the years before this paper we would advocate even in penetrating trauma particularly but even in blunt trauma um, not giving the volumes of crystalloid that we once gave it's a difficult question to answer there's a significant difference between the two groups but as to whether or not delivering that amount of crystalloid was detrimental because the other intervention was the one being tested, it's really difficult to say out of this paper. Thank you. That actually raises an interesting point. I didn't see something specifically in the paper that addressed this in my brief read of it, but you did mention initially when you were introducing the paper that it was cluster randomised because of you know logistical issues in terms of the availability of the plasma and similarly now uh, you know in terms of the availability of the blood. I wonder if there's a possibility of an association between the availability of the plasma and the availability of blood. And so whether possibly the patients who were getting crystalloid weren't, were also getting less blood compared to the other group. And I, I didn't see something in the paper to differentiate that between the groups, but I wonder if that in and of itself could have had a significant impact. I actually found something in the paper that the, I wrote down the issue I have with this paper other than the two point that I just mentioned. The third point is that the pre-hospital transfusion percentage in the standard group is 42.1% and in the plasma group is 26.1%. So in the standard care that you actually give more red cells, not more percentage of people that got red cells compared to the plasma group. I do believe that crystalloid volume and the imbalance of transfusion just by giving PEC cells does have impacts on this traumatic coagulopathy that we are dealing with. And this is why that most of this paper was trying to address to find out the ratio. But to me that the ratio number-wise is probably not as important as the reminder to ourselves is that transfusion, when we need to give transfusion for traumatic hemorrhage uh, patient, we need to try to strike a balance. It's just not one 
you need to have all, not just one. It has been interesting to see the complexity of that sort of early resuscitation phase in trauma sort of evolve over the last 15 or so years from when the initial teaching was mostly just fill them full of salty water uh, to now, you know, minimising all of that and, uh, and sort of adding these adjuncts. And I guess that's also reflected by the, the recent sort of increase in use of TEG and Rotom in these contexts as well to better guide our resuscitation. Do you think that'll be something that might be used in the pre-hospital setting? Uh, like an early, because I guess the earlier we have that result, the more we can use it in the ED phase as well as the sort of early resus phase and that damage control surgery perspective too. There's something in the pipeline for the my colleagues in the ambulance service that in research department that they were, I believe that maybe six months ago or before the COVID, no, I think it's before the COVID kick in, that they were actually studying that which machine, the tag of the rotor machine, they can put it onto the helicopter. Mm. So it can be approved by the engineer and have the way of securing the device without causing anybody harm. And they were trying to roll out a study. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing, amazing. Yeah, it's interesting to see how things are progressing from that that point of view it's always really fascinating yeah but covid just kind of yeah <laughs> yeah i think covid set everyone back about 12 to 18 months mm-hmm. for the sounds of things yeah and it's very much horses for courses i guess with those sort of devices um as ruby mentioned obviously anything that goes into any sort of air platform needs to be sort of thoroughly assessed from an aviation and security kind of point of view it's usability you know in things like vibration and calibration of a device all of that needs to be looked at with anything we put in the aircraft and then things like transport times i guess need to be considered as well so certainly for the longer haul you know retrieving patients back to sort of T1 level trauma centres in Sydney, something like that may be very useful. But the nice thing about the time course in this paper is, you know, there was the suggestion that the earlier the plasma is given, it may confer an even sort of greater survival benefit. So certainly when you look at the majority of trauma in the Sydney Basin, actually short transport times, just getting that plasma in early getting the packed cells as follow-up and other things, as you mentioned, you know, things like TXA, calcium, putting it through a warmer, all of that forms that bundle of care for those patients as well because, as Ruby mentioned, you know, the patients that you test their coags even early on, just the mechanism alone, you know, likely induces a coagulopathy. So if we can get those products in early, look at all those sort of, you know, curtains on the windows if you like of all those additional adjuncts that we give and short transport times then you may not need to go to that level depending on you know what what the situation is thanks for touching on that i was just going to ask in terms of extrapolating this i guess to the emergency setting just saying you know if you, if you have a patient that's been scoop and run to the ed from the paramedics or something along you know along those lines would you be then I guess having the plasma as your first intervention for those for these sorts of patients even before blood yeah, I think that's certainly the suggestion from this paper that even as um, a fluid alone, plasma confers that survival benefit even in patients that are significant outcomes in those patients who were not even given uh, red cells at all um, still conveyed a survival benefit in those in those patients. And I think even in our EDs, we've seen a lot of those ready-made packs become more available so you don't have to ring anyone and beg for products or ring the cranky haematologist. Sorry, not all haematologists are cranky. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but there's not a lot of negotiation and you can get those products in as in an early way to the severely injured hypotensive patients. And that was the other really nice thing about this paper. I thought it was a very clear and easy criteria to follow so you don't have to sort of 
you know, think a lot about the, the patients that it applies to if they have that severe episode of hypotension or even a moderate episode of hypotension before your eyes. You don't have to sort of overthink it too much. Can I just ask, uh, what's the MTP units in Westmead when you ask for one? No, I'm, I'm speculating. <laughs> <laughs> I think in uh, most hospitals, like, uh, I can't remember exactly in Orange, but in St. George's, like, four units of pack cells, that's the first box. Second box is coming with the plasma, with another couple of units of pack cells and a platelet. Mm. So I wonder whether this kind of data, this kind of information should be actually filtering upwards to the hematology department to say that there might be a reason that you put a plasma in the first box, it's not a good the thought. second I mean, box. I, I think it's a good thought of whether or not in the ED we should just be shoving plasma immediately rather than pack cells. Because the temptation is always to put the red stuff in. And again, a lot of that, I think, has got pragmatic challenges, which is why we moved to the ELP, because it doesn't have to be the thawing, um, like FFP generally is supplied from the hospital. We've also got really nice bits of kit. We, we plug ours into a MedQ warmer, uh, which is instantly warmed through a through a cartridge, just tapes onto the patient's arm. So there's been a lot of data and a lot of advances in kit that's come with warmers as well, which has overcome some of those challenges of obviously very cold products going in early. The blood box we carry, we carry two units of Paxels and two units of the ELP um, held in a come sealed in the morning. Uh, from the blood bank and once you crack that because obviously it's a tight temperature control with the um, coolant that's in that box once that box is cracked the whole box is essentially null and void so unless you use all products the remainder have to be we always return them to the blood bank but the remainder are unusable my main take-home was just understanding that trauma is a unique physiology and pathology uh, and sort of separate to the other other instances of acute hemorrhagic shock that we see in the ed and so I think the trend has always been all hemorrhagic shock is the same hemorrhagic shock, but evidently that's not true. And so there is some cognitive load that is there in the resuscitation of these patients, be that with permissive hypotension, which is now, I think, sort of well-established as a resuscitative modality, through to minimising crystalloid resuscitation, the use of TEG, TXA, obviously coming in in the last sort of half a decade or so, and now with this data as well really sort of affirms our position as, you know, this is what we do as resuscitationists in the ED for these patients, right? We have an understanding that the benefits can be conferred by appropriate product choice. Um, and so for me, it really affirmed that sort of understanding. Besides the obvious change in clinical practice for the both of you, did you have any other take-home thoughts on, on the paper itself? In terms of the paper itself, just leaving that behind for one second, just in terms of the, the upcoming uh, changes that might occur in this field of resuscitation, though, just a, a quick plug for a study called Patch, which has just finished recruiting across Australia and New Zealand. And it will be really interesting to see, because as you say, Pramod, um, TXA hasn't really proved useful in a lot of other disease entities. So it was uh, a randomised trial. As I said, right across Australia and New Zealand, pre-hospital medical teams have recruited for this study to try to tease out whether or not we can ascertain any benefit from the early pre-hospital administration of TXA. Yeah, definitely some exciting developments going forward there. So space to watch, I think. And just for me is that always consider balanced transfusion early. That should be the starting point. And as Ruth mentioned that it also comes with a whole bundle of care, not just squeezing the blood products in. It's warming it, it's considered calcium, it's considered other things. Definitely some uh, valuable insights from both of you. So thanks so much for that. 
And that brings us to the end of our last article. So thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Now, it's time for everyone's favourite segment of the podcast, Kit's Corner. We all know that trauma isn't just the glory of pre-hospital airways, roadside thoracotomies and Reboa. And what fits the perhaps less glamorous model of a potential trauma patient more than intoxication? And dignity isn't the only thing you're liable to be losing in such a state. I dare say I wouldn't be the first to iterate that at times Australians are pretty shameful at it. Take the Munich Beer Festival Oktoberfest. More Australians lose their passport at Oktoberfest than people of any other nationality. And that's not the end of it. As I recall, more Australians lose their passports at Oktoberfest than every other nationality added together. In fact, rumour has it that so many Australians lose their passports that, for one month a year, half of the British consulate in Munich becomes a temporary Australian embassy. Alrighty, guys, that's everything that we've got for this month. Thank you all so much for joining us and thank you so much to our guest speakers, Yelise, Shannon and Ruby coming all the way from Orange to join us. It was really special to have you and Ruth, always very fascinating insights. As always, any feedback, thoughts or questions that you might have, please contact us. Uh, our email address is westmeadedjournalclub at gmail.com. All of the links to today's papers will be in the show notes. Before we wrap, just got one special mention uh, that I'd like to say, which is that unfortunately our sound producer, Cynthia, is going to be leaving us after this month um, for greener pastures or rather bluer pastures because she's going to be travelling around Queensland in her boat. Cynthia, it's been such a pleasure having you help us and, and really I don't know that we would have gotten anywhere nearly this far without your guidance. So we really appreciate having had you and hopefully you can come and join the team again in the future. Yeah, we really appreciate all of your help. Thanks everyone for listening and we'll be back again in your ears in July. <laughs>